Hey, Richie. Hey, Alex. How's it going? Good. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. I'm enjoying my time hosting the show. Did you hear that Raw Talk is recruiting? For season three? Yeah, you're being replaced. I was one. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Did you all know about this? You're fired. (laughs) I'm joking. But not actually. So not only are we looking for a new show host, we're also looking for a new segment host, comms executive, and public relations executive. Oh, but come on, guys. I can change. I have many other skills. Are you also looking for an audio engineer, a web developer, a graphic designer, or perhaps a photographer? Totally. How do I apply? So you can find our application on our website, which is rawtalkpodcast.com, and send your application to rawtalkpodcast at gmail.com. And when do you need that by? June 7th. Sounds great. Better be on time. Enjoy the episode, listeners. Bye. Hey, everyone. Melissa here. Welcome to episode 36 of Raw Talk, where scientists talk and we listen. On today's episode, Grace and I had the chance to catch up with someone who I've admired since I was an undergraduate cell biology student. Dr. Frieda Miller. Dr. Miller is a senior scientist at the Hospital for Sick Children. She's a Canada Research Chair in Developmental Neurobiology, a Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, and a Howard Hughes Medical Institute International Research Scholar. As if that isn't a tall enough order to fill, she's also a third Dan Black Belt. Her lab is at the forefront of developmental neurobiology research and has been able to use accumulating knowledge of how the brain and other organs such as skin are built in order to rebuild them in circumstances of damage or degeneration. We touch on many topics in our discussion, including Dr. Miller's transition from biochemistry to neuroscience, her advice to budding scientists on choosing which questions to ask, and how her research brought her full circle from the study of growth factors in the brain to stem cells to genetic disorders that result in cognitive impairment back to growth factors. We also caught up with Dr. Donald Mabbitt to discuss how some of Dr. Miller's findings with a drug called metformin resulted in a pilot clinical trial for children with acquired brain injury after cancer treatment. If you're into stem cells and developmental neuroscience, check out some of our other episodes, including episode 16 featuring Dr. Derek Vanderkoy and episode 28 featuring Dr. Andras Naj. If you enjoy the show, show your love by subscribing and rating us on iTunes or wherever else you listen to podcasts. And check us out on social media at Raw Talk Podcast. All right, here's Dr. Miller. Hi, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Miller. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and your journey to pursue neuroscience research? Sure, of course. As I think I told you once before, I always have thought of myself as being kind of an accidental scientist. I was very fortunate in that when I was brought up by my family, they didn't really press me to do one thing versus another, right? They just said, look, whatever you do, do your best at it, enjoy it, and work hard. <laughs> and that those were my guiding principles. And so really, I didn't think about being a scientist until I stumbled into a chemistry class. And I know this is going to sound odd to most people, <laughs> but chemistry to me was, was an eye-opener. And I think it was particularly an eye-opener because that was in high school. And my high school teacher at that point said, I want you to forget all the memorization you've done. I'm just going to take you into a laboratory and you're going to do experiments and figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. And it was so refreshing to actually be in a class where they asked you to think Mm -hmm. 
and observe and then move from there that I just th thought that chemistry was the best thing in the world. And so then I went into biochemistry and ended up, I loved biochemistry, ended up doing a PhD really much more in molecular biology and biochemistry than I did in anything more biology oriented. I remember at the time, and this would have been in the late 70s, uh, early 80s, when I was doing this, I was doing actually going to more biophysical meetings and things. And honestly, it was, first, the meetings were odd because, as you can imagine, there were hardly any women. And secondly, I mean, I love biophysics still to this day, but the reality is that it didn't really matter if the questions you were asking had anything to do with anything, quotes, unquote, real. It was a very... Uh, there was um, no translational was medicine. That's exactly it. It. Yeah. it was it was almost theoretical, and that was fine. But at the time I was doing that, I did my PhD in Calgary, and I was in the medical school. And so all of my friends who were graduate students said, you know, they were telling me about their projects, and their projects were very biology-oriented. And I thought, you know, I really want to do something where I can combine this kind of background and really kind of hardcore molecular biology, biochemistry, gene expression, together with something biological. And, you know, this is how serendipity works in your life. My laboratory happened to be located in the vicinity of some neuroscience labs. And I was talking to one of the new young faculty who had just finished his postdoc. And he said, you know, I want to do some more biology, but I'm just not sure exactly what. And he said, Frida, go into neuroscience. It's the future. <laughs> and I literally took him at his word. And I said, well, where should I go? He wasn't biased at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he wasn't biased at all, exactly. And I ended up going to work at uh, the Scripps Institute in the same group he had just done his postdoc wow. in. So, and the rest, as they say, is history. I never looked back. It was a really amazing choice. I mean, it was a very steep uphill curve. All graduate students know what I'm talking about. You go yeah. into something completely different. And you really know nothing. I, I, I didn't even know what the brain looked like. But having said that, I knew things they didn't know because mm -hmm. I had this biochemistry, molecular biology background. So actually, in a way, it, it was uh, a happy integration of new things. And that's one of the things I always say to graduate students, right? Don't just try to, to do what your mentor does try to add on that, right? I mean, you, you want to bring something new. You don't want to just do it the old ways. I mean, even if your mentor is very cutting edge, like we try to be. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, right, the more different things you know, the more your personal perspective on questions that are good and or how to answer them will be innovative and cutting edge. Mm -hmm. And I just want to talk a little bit about, you said it's sort of serendipitous, but you know, you did have sort of an idea that I want to combine this very basic biophysics, biochemistry with neuroscience and or something more cellular biology based. How do you choose, even now you're doing so many different projects in your lab, how do you choose where you're going to take that? Because neuroscience is a really broad field. How did you choose where to go? That's an excellent question. And it's actually one that as a scientist, you should spend your whole life asking. Yeah. You know, you should always be asking. Even so, once you have a lab. Even once you have a lab. Even more so when you have a lab. You have to be asking, now I have more resources. It's not just me anymore. Mm -hmm. Really, what are the best questions to ask? I mean, part of it is driven by personality. So I have a personality that I don't like competing with people. And as a consequence, I'm always trying to look at questions that are interesting, but then find a system or a way of asking them that really isn't very crowded. 
frequently, I'll go back to the old literature and I'll look around and say what's an old question someone had that they weren't able to ask because they didn't have the technology at the time, or what are the classic old problems, and can I put a new spin on that, if you will, to find out something we've been wondering about for a long time. And the advice I would give, if you were like me, and you did not want to just plunge into the most competitive thing you can find, but would rather kind of find your own way, is to really think deeply about what are the unanswered questions what is feasible because sometimes we have unanswered questions that actually we can't answer because we don't have the technology and what is wide open you know one of the pieces of advice i got actually when i was a postdoctoral fellow and wondering about which particular questions i should ask my supervisor said to me it's just as much work to ask a small question as a big question and what he really meant by that is look at at the area you're interested in and really just go for something that really is a big answer not just you know one other little player in a particular pathway that you Mm -hmm. already know regulates something right but can I find a new pathway Mm -hmm. or can Mm -hmm. I define a new principle for these cells and that comes to the second thing which is it's a double-edged sword right on the one hand if you go after things like that you will have tons of space to do research, to develop your own shtick, if you will, and really many years before, if you will, the rat pack Mm. catches up with you and it becomes competitive, Mm -hmm. right? The flip side of that, though, is you are taking risks. And you're alone. Yeah, and you're alone, right? And and sometimes you have to have a lot of, if you will, intestinal fortitude Mm. because if you are ahead of the game, sometimes other people don't recognize that it's even a game yet. You know what I mean? And you may go to a journal and you may have some really amazing result. And they might say, well, no one else even thinks this is that interesting. Mm -hmm. But I I have to say that every time that has happened to me, that three years later, all of a sudden people are saying, oh, you know, wow, that is kind of interesting, right? You developed that. And oh, maybe I should think about using that approach or whatever. So you have to, um, by intestinal fortitude, I meant you have to have enough confidence and enough colleagues to enhance your confidence, right? That you can talk to, to ask the hard questions. Like if everybody thinks this is really out there, is it out there and interesting or is it just out there, you know, and not worth asking? You mentioned already that you did your postdoc at the Scripps Research Institute. We were wondering if you could talk a bit more about that and perhaps how it contrasted to your training in Canada. Oh, yeah. It was a big shock for me to be a (laughs) postdoctoral fellow there. Um, I came from Calgary where I did my PhD. And honestly, it was a very supportive environment in many ways. Really lovely faculty members. Um, The pressure wasn't to publish in big journals. It was simply to do a nice job on your science. I had supportive friends and colleagues. And I went to Scripps and it was really a hotbed in many ways. You know, very competitive, a lot of postdocs, which again, I was not used to, and a lot of postdocs with very big ambitions Mm -hmm. and a lot of PIs with very big ambitions. And so all of a sudden the whole game changed, right? Whereas the game before for me was simply doing the best I could do and publishing nice papers and and, uh, hopefully learning something interesting. The game there was 
to make sure that you were going to get your paper in the big journal and to do it faster than the guy on the next bench and to play the politics. I almost, I almost didn't go on because it was so distasteful to me. Just the whole scene, not the science. I had a lot of fun doing science. And don't get me wrong, I did have supportive supervisors and friends. But there are also a lot of people around me who were pretty sharky. And I had to do a lot of soul searching. And I finally made the decision. I got several job offers back in Canada. Um, and I made the decision that, well, you know what? I'm just going to try it. And this is this is an old song, right? I'll do it my way. Um, but really, that was the decision. I'm just going to try and do this in a way that I'm happy with, which is to kind of do the best I can do and publish in excellent journals as best as I can and, and not worry about all that stuff. And if it doesn't work, if that's not sufficient to be successful, quotes unquote, in my career, then I'll do something else. And what I found, actually, is that it was enough to do that. Yeah. You know, it, 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 you didn't have to, like, publish in Science or Neuron or whatever your favorite trendy journal is, right? And, and the other important thing to know is that that actually came over time. You know, over time, <laughs> you developed, I developed my own system. My colleagues developed theirs. And it reached the point where that was considered interesting enough to be in those journals. So every time one of my own students goes to go for their postdoc, I just say, look, just be aware that there is that out there. But you yourself, you have to be savvy. You have to protect yourself, right, in the sense of, you know, don't let people step on you. But the flip side of that is you don't have to participate in that kind of politicking competitiveness, right? You can, you can maintain your own style and not worry about it. You just have to have the confidence to do it. Again, you have to have the confidence to do it, and you have to maintain connections with people who will support you in that decision. And I think that's really important. It's really important to keep contacts, perhaps with your old lab. It always surprises me that, I mean, I feel very possessive, I guess is, a, is perhaps not the right word, but everyone who leaves my lab, I, I'm very invested in them. And some of them maintain a close relationship and they're always asking me for advice and what about this or what about that. And others, I think, are reluctant to do it because I think they feel nervous about it. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You need more advice now mm -hmm. as you're striking out into the big world than you probably needed when you were actually in my lap. Mm -hmm. I would encourage anyone who's going off to a postdoc, if you have good friends here in Toronto who've supported you in your graduate school, then then take advantage of that because they'll give you a reality check, right? Mm -hmm. And Toronto's a great connection to have. Absolutely. We have a lot of resources here. Well, the other thing about Toronto, I think people leaving Toronto would probably be a bit more savvy than I was leaving Calgary. And it's just because Calgary was a smaller scientific community and I hadn't seen all the things that, to be honest, you've probably already seen to some degree here in Toronto. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, don't get me wrong. Most people here are fantastic and you don't have that kind of nasty environment. But, you know, you do see people really pushing to get into big journals and mm -hmm. worrying about stuff like that here more. But it's in a controlled way. Yeah. yeah. So, so I just want to take a step back and, and talk more about your lab and your work now here at Sick Sure. So you've kind of delved deeply into a lot of different areas in, in neurogenesis. And can we talk a little bit about your work and and do you want to talk about some of the exciting projects that are going on right now? Sure, of course, yeah. of course. When I used to be at the Montreal Neurological Institute 
And uh, David Kaplan, my husband and very close collaborator, and I were both very interested in growth factors and how growth factors select neurons for survival and growth and how you build circuitry for the brain and uh, the peripheral nervous system at that time. When we moved here 13 years ago, um, it's a very different scientific environment here in Toronto and here at SickKids. First, as as all of you know, there's a fantastic developmental biology community here. And secondly, there's a fantastic, equally fantastic stem cell community. Mm -hmm. Now, we were already doing some stem cell work on neurogenesis, and I had already discovered these dermal stem cells we've done a lot of work on in Montreal. So we decided, we actually made a conscious decision that let's take advantage of really the strengths of sick kids that we didn't have in Montreal and move more in that area. So since coming here, we have spent a lot of time trying to understand how stem cells build the brain. I've always had a very strong belief that if you can understand how things are put together during development, then that will give you insights into how you can perhaps fix, at least to some degree, the damaged or degenerating nervous system. So at the same time we have been working on how stem cells build the brain, we've also been working on how you can then take at least some of the selected lessons we learn and try to, to fix a damaged brain. Mm -hmm. And of course, Sick Kids has been a phenomenal environment for that kind of work. Uh, we, we took a journey where um, when a lot of the genetics, human genetics data was starting to come out, really defining a lot of genetic disorders with cognitive problems. We really tried to take advantage of that. And of course, again, Sick Kids is a hotbed for that kind of work. And that allowed us to start to understand um, a lot about the genes that help the stem cells that build the brain. And then we've kind of just followed that along mm -hmm. as the technology evolved. And the most recent things, of course, are now allowing us using sort of really high throughput technologies, you know, single cell RNA sequencing and, and uh, really the fantastic computational biologists that are here to really take that even to the next level, to really query what are all the stem cells in the developing brain? How do they make neurons and other cells? And finally, the reason I mentioned growth factors at the beginning is because we have now come full circle. We can now actually ask, okay, if these are the sort of the intrinsic genetic programs that we can start to define, can we now understand what the growth factors are in the environment of those cells and how those growth factors feed in to regulate how they behave. Now, the really exciting thing about that is, again, you know, with this idea of always trying to push forward into things other people aren't studying, is we're kind of alone out there on mm -hmm. this now, because it takes a lot of integrative biology and computation and a perfect system, you know. You which need we, a perfect team. Yeah, yeah, you need a perfect team. And so this has been really exciting for us from many perspectives, both from a finding out a lot of knowledge perspective, but also when you start to talk about strategies for treating a damaged brain, growth factors really are one strategy and or the signaling pathways that they activate mm -hmm. are druggable targets. So now actually those that particular whole set of studies has actually led us to being involved in pilot clinical trials for kids with brain injuries, you know, the one that has just 
been unblinded was done with Don Mabbitt, and that's kids that have had um, have a brain injury as a consequence of the curative radiotherapy they got for their brain tumors, uh, mostly medulloblastomas. And so those kids have laid on they have late effects. They have cognitive problems afterwards because you know irradiating the brain of a little child is not a positive thing to do. <laughs> and uh, you know, so some of the discoveries and drugs we we found in this kind of journey have now been put into those kids. So I really have my fingers crossed. I'm very excited about that. The other very exciting direction we've gone, uh, to me anyway, is, you know, I've always been interested, as you may have gathered from what I'm saying, in sort of plasticity and regeneration. And again, this is this tie-in between development and the adult, right? And we made a decision eight or nine years ago that we were going to try and understand tissue regeneration in a little broader perspective. And we built a model in the lab that had been used by several labs, but hardly at all, which is the adult mouse digit tip. So the digit tip um, is, I would argue, the only place in a mammal's body, including by mammals, I mean humans as well, where you actually get true multi-tissue regeneration. Digit tip, meaning the tips of your fingers. Yes, and, yes. Yeah. So yeah. If a, a human, you can actually, there's lots of anecdotal reports that hold tip of your finger's gone and it actually regenerates and you can actually do that in a mouse and so we've actually set that up in the lab and we're doing all this really cool stuff on what are the stem cells that do that what's the environment that does that and you know what's even though that's a completely different part of the body from the brain nonetheless that many of the messages are the same right the stem cells and the growth factors and the sort of principles Mm -hmm. of building tissues are all the same. So I'm just really excited about this kind of uh, convergence of basically two two major systems, right? And all of the technologies and all the colleagues we have here in Toronto. You just heard Dr. Miller explain how her work has led her to pilot clinical trials for kids with brain injury. The specific clinical trial she's alluding to tested a drug called metformin in children who have experienced radiotherapy as a treatment for brain cancer. Metformin is a drug that's approved for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. So what does a drug for diabetes have to do with repairing an injured brain? Well, we know that throughout our lives, our brain maintains a population of special cells called neural stem cells. These cells are capable of both renewing themselves and creating all the other different types of cells in the brain. You can imagine that these stem cells would be useful if you suffered from brain injury, if you had a stroke, for example. In theory, the stem cells should be able to repair the damage and regenerate your lost brain tissue. But in reality, the response is not particularly successful. Neural stem cells just don't actually repair a damaged brain on their own. So scientists look for drugs and molecules that stimulate those stem cells to multiply and generate new brain cells. Essentially, they want to enhance stem cell activity. Over the last five years, since 2012, Dr. Miller and her colleagues have shown in a series of studies that metformin can cause the expansion and differentiation of stem cells in both a normal and injured brain. Not only that, but metformin can actually promote the migration of those stem cells to the site of injury. It enhances our already existing repair system. To find out how metformin held up in kids post-brain cancer treatment, we sat down with Dr. Donald Mabbitt a clinical psychologist and neuroscientist at SickKids to discuss the trial design and outcomes. Hi, everyone. We're here with Dr. Donald Mabbitt. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. Uh, could you first tell us a little bit about your background and the research you do here? 
Sure. Uh, so I'm a senior scientist in the Research Institute here at the Hospital for Sick Children. My background is actually as a child psychologist. Um, I did my PhD at the University of Alberta in developmental psychology, and then I went on and got training in neuropsychology and cognitive neuroscience. So I'm really uh, a brain scientist. I work clinically with children more previously in my career. Now I do primarily clinical research with children with uh, neurologic injuries, particularly children who have been treated for and survived a brain tumor, uh, and they've been left with a brain injury. So I uh, do research on what that brain injury looks like and hopefully ultimately help to help that uh, help heal that brain injury. And that's really important because I, I guess before it was just improving survival for children with cancer, and now we have like greater than 80% survival, and people forget that it's not just survival, but what happens after. So is there sort of a difference between um, kids who are treated for brain cancer and adults who are treated for brain cancer or any other? Yeah, sort of yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I, the kind of what I say is we've gotten really good at curing kids for, from cancer, or actually for most pediatric injuries and illnesses. But in curing them, we're leaving them with chronic health conditions. The treatments, the disease and the treatments themselves leave them with a long-term health condition. Because in, in kids, it's because their, gr- their brain is growing. And so kids have more learning problems and have greater vulnerability in their brains than, say, adults with cancer or adults with brain tumor. And so that's, uh, you know, up until I would say 10 years ago, it was all just about can we give less toxic treatment to make things better? But there were no active therapies to figure out a way to actually, okay, now that the brain is in, injured, can we f- harness... The, the natural plasticity of the brain or find some medication that can help the brain heal after um, it's been injured. Speaking of, would you mind telling us a bit about uh, metformin and the clinical trial you've just finished up? Yeah, so metformin is an agent that uh, you know from talking with Frieda Miller that stimulates the stem cells in the brain to grow into healthy neurons or healthy uh, white matter or glial cells. And it really operates on this idea that if we can harness the endogenous or the natural plasticity of the brain to heal itself, then there shows that could be really promising as a a medication, as an agent for children or adults with a brain injury. The nice thing about metformin is it's been around for a very long time. It's been used to treat diabetes. It's been used to treat diabetes in kids and adults. In fact, it's even been used to treat Uh, metabolic disorders in children treated for cancer. So because of that, we know that it's a safe drug and it's uh, fairly tolerated. And with other collaborations between Frida and myself, both having an interest in kind of harnessing brain plasticity for brain repair, we started talking and it, it made a lot of sense to say, based on the, the work that she's done and the group Cindy Morsehead and Paul Franklin and David Kaplan that showing the kind of the mechanisms of how metformin works is, was to actually take it directly into a clinical trial and with the children who are survivors of brain tumors. And so uh, we got regulatory approval, we got Health Canada approval, fairly straightforward because it's such a, a well-known medication and we started the trial, oh, I'd say it's probably three and a half, four years ago, and we finished just in December the last patient. We had 24 patients complete the trial. So it just finished, and we're just kind of 
right in the middle of saying, okay, what is the uh, effect of metformin? It's a pilot trial. So anytime you do a clinical trial for the first time, you know, it's a bit like looking for a needle in a haystack. What, what is, you know, we know what metformin does at a cellular level. We know that if you look in the hippocampus, you know, or in the corpus callosum, you can see cellular changes. How does that look like? What does that look like in the human brain? We don't know. So this trial was really kind of a test trial to say, okay, let's give a number of different measures. So we had a lot of measures of brain imaging, the structure of the brain, the function of the brain, as well as behavioral cognitive thinking tasks to say, what of these measures shows if any, first of all, but is there any effect on these measures? And if so, what is the one that has the most effect? And then the idea would be now to take that and go forward into a, a full trial. So this was like a pilot trial to, to see if there's any signal there. And I think uh, our initial analyses are very promising. I think there is some signal there, and it's uh, encouraging for us to start thinking about going forward to now a full, full-on phase three efficacy trial. And you talked a little bit about damage in the brain. So what sort of happens, what do you see, what kind of imaging do you guys do and what do you see in these kids who are treated? Um, Yeah, so we do uh, structural imaging of the brain using MRI and we look at both the the gray matter and the white matter and it's the white matter in the brain that's particularly vulnerable in these kids. In in fact, again, in general, white matter in kids is particularly vulnerable, uh, likely the myelin. And so we... I've published many studies showing less white matter as well as using quantitative techniques that allow us to quantify the type of compromise. So we look at water diffusion in the brain. That that tells us a bit about the structure of the white matter, and we know that that's compromised in these kids. We look at the hippocampus, so we look at like the size of the hippocampus, and the hippocampus is important for learning and memory. And that's another area that kids who have been treated with with radiation have uh, problems in. And so actually, one of the things that we're seeing from the trial is uh, the kids, when they're on metformin, it looks like their memory is improving and there's potential that the hippocampi, certain areas of the hippocampus are changing as well, changing in volume, which is interesting to me because actually if you go back to the original paper that uh, Jing Wang uh, did with Frida. So Jing is a, was a postdoc with Frida. Now she's got her own lab in, in Ottawa. Uh, they worked with Paul Franklin here at SickKids, and they looked at metformin in, in a mouse model and saw that that improved their learning and it changed their hippocampus. So we're kind of seeing the same things in humans that we saw in the mouse model, which very rarely happens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I feel like everyone's always talking about how mice are they're an ideal mammalian model until they're not yeah. autom- immediately. <laughs> we, we've gotten very good at curing mice, less so humans. And, yeah. and so this is very cool to me because it's actually eerily familiar, the similarities between the type of learning that we see improved in mice and the type of learning that we're seeing improved in these kids. So That's amazing, yeah. In terms of a uh, little more about the kids who were involved in the study, so they have um, yeah. a range of brain tumors, yeah. but I assume the brain tumors are kind of spread across the brains. How do you differentiate the damage that was caused by the brain tumor? The yeah, it's a great point. It's a great point. So ideally, we and we started the trial with limiting to just kids with um, a tumor in one particular part of the brain, in the back of the brain, in the cerebellum, in the posterior fossa. Medulloblastoma. Medulloblastoma. But we didn't uh, get 
enough of those kids just because fortunately it's a rare disease. Um, so then we expanded to include other areas of the brain. So there were kids with tumors in the cerebellum as well as in the, the, the cerebral hemispheres. So in terms of damage, it's hard to say, okay, you know, what's due to the tumor, what's due to the chemotherapy. All the kids in the trial were treated with radiation. And I think what we do know is radiation is probably the most toxic to the brain. So what we don't know and what we're starting to figure out is the impact of all those other things. But what we do know is radiation is probably the most toxic. The important thing for the trial is uh, it was a crossover design, which essentially means that each child was their own control. So it didn't really matter where the tumor was because they were being compared to themselves. So in a crossover design, you know, some would get the metformin first, and then there would be a washout period, and then they get a placebo. And then some others would be uh, get the placebo first, and then there would be a washout period, and then they get the metformin. So you're comparing mm -hmm. each kid to themselves. So fortunately, that meant that where the tumor was, while it may affect how impaired the kids were, it wouldn't necessarily affect whether they responded to the metformin or not, or it wouldn't, it wouldn't confound our results that way. And where do you see sort of the future of using metformin? Would you use it concurrently with therapy or immediately following therapy? Yeah. Or, uh, or all of the above. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so probably we started with kids, kind of back to your point about what, who were the kids in the trial, who were at least two years from their primary cancer therapy because we wanted to first of all see in kids who are medically stable um, is there any potential effect there but kind of to your point ultimately if we can actually prevent the damage in the first place and there's a lot of good evidence to suggest why metformin might be useful in preventing damage we should next you know maybe give it to kids on therapy mm. you know the challenge with that is these kids are receiving fairly intensive uh, therapy already for their brain tumor, but I think that's probably the next step of where we want to go. So I don't personally see metformin as something that we give by itself. Mm -hmm. I think probably, and this is kind of also coming out of the work that, uh, again, coming from Frida's lab, you know, it, it creates an optimal environment for brain plasticity. So the model I think of is when we treat a brain tumor itself, we don't just do one therapy. We don't just do surgery. We used to do just surgery, and kids didn't survive. But it's a combination of things, surgery, radiation, chemotherapy. I see the same thing with harnessing you know, the plasticity of the brain. So we might give, in fact, uh, we have another trial with children with cerebral palsy that's just, just about to start where we're combining metformin with physiotherapy. Mm. So physio physiotherapy is the standard of care, uh, and then there'll be either a plus or minus placebo. The thinking being that the metformin will help create the right environment in the brain for the physiotherapy therapy to be that much more effective. I'm interested in, in um, lifestyle interventions like physical ac activity. So maybe mm. we'll pair metformin with uh, physical activity because we know that physical activity actually changes the brain as well. Mm, one of the biggest or, modulators. On the yeah, brain, yeah. Or, or cognitive rehabilitation. So I think there's a lot of places we can go, but the first place was always with this trial to say, is there actually a signal there? Does it actually do something in the human brain? I think the nice thing about kind of the work that Frida's done and about metformin is it has a, a general effect on the stem cell niche in the brain. 
there's a lot of uh, pediatric disorders where I think if you can stimulate the stem cell niche, that has potential benefits for them. So cerebral palsy, as I mentioned, uh, there's a white matter injury there. Um, and so there's a lot of good reason to expect it's going to work there. We have another trial that's uh, about to start with Anne Ye, who's a neurologist here. And this is Frida and Anne and myself looking at the impact that uh, metformin may have in multiple sclerosis and inflammatory demyelination. I think we could look at stroke. So it's not limited to specific disease because it's, it's, it's uh, addressing re regeneration of specific tissue in the brain, which has, can be generalized to pretty much any potential uh, injury that you think uh, is relevant. Okay, I think that's a perfect place to end off. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Bye. So you, you talked about plasticity. And so we know we have these repair processes in the brain in, in the event of stroke or traumatic brain injury, but they don't necessarily work to an extent that actually causes full repair. So I'm wondering, so what, what's the point in having these mechanisms if they're not doing all that much in an adult brain. So, so you're asking really a philosophical question, which anyone who works in this area is always wondering about. Why, for example, does an axolotl, why can it regenerate its spinal cord and a whole limb? What, why did we lose that? Yeah. You know, that would seem to be a very useful. I would love that. Yeah, yeah. It, precisely. I mean, it would be painful to have your arm cut. <laughs> yes. But like... The whole, for science. Actually, maybe it would be painful for it to regenerate too. <laughs> so um, to come back to that, you see, with regard to the brain, I have this idea, and of course now we're off into deep speculation, right? You spend decades wiring a brain that makes you you, okay? And there is some plasticity. You do have the ability to modify connections and gain new memories and lose some memories and whatever. But... When you have a brain injury, I think what you're seeing is a reflection of the, the fact that it doesn't rebuild itself very well, is a reflection of the fact that you actually don't want too much plasticity in your brain normally, mm. right? Mm -hmm. You built all these connections. Can you imagine it, if you just want to use the simplest analogy of a computer that doesn't remodel? You know, it takes a lot of work to build a computer that can think. Do you really want all those wires and those circuits to start crossing and becoming new ones? And so it's almost like you, what makes you, you, and I, I is mm -hmm. what we might risk losing mm -hmm. if we had too much plasticity in our brains. And so as a consequence, I believe plasticity and repair are basically just two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. And so we don't have the same repairability. Having said that, there is plasticity normally, and we do regain some of our abilities, but it's not reliable, heavy individual predisposition one way or the other, which is probably all genetics, I would assume, much of it. And um, we don't really understand it, right? But we mm -hmm. do know that there are people, for example, who have massive strokes. You brought up stroke, right? And if they're young enough, let's say, or, or let's say they're in a terrible motorcycle accident when they're 30 years old, mm -hmm. right? And you'll see them 15 years later and you'd never know mm -hmm. anything was wrong. So clearly there is plasticity and there is that kind of flexibility. They have not, by the way, in most cases, rebuilt all the brain tissue that they destroyed. Sure. What they have done in many cases is relearned how to use other circuits in a new way. And rewired. Yeah, and rewired. So, mm -hmm. so 
I know this is sort of deep philosophy, but that's kind of my idea. The other, by the way, just for interest, um, with regards to other tissues, right? Like why shouldn't, if I can regenerate my fingertip, why shouldn't I be able to regenerate at least a whole finger? Then people start to get into the cancer argument, right? Yeah. You know, well, I mean, maybe the trade-off is regeneration versus predisposition to cancer. Now, Mm -hmm. that doesn't always hold up, you know, because there are animals that regenerate that actually don't apparently get cancer or not much of it mm-hmm. but nonetheless it's it's another way of thinking about that yeah maybe if you don't repair yourself or your brain doesn't repair you're less likely to get cancer later on yeah yeah I, yeah it's i mean honestly you that would be interesting yeah. there's some actually very interesting things about p53 mm-hmm. and getting cancer or not and how long you live and i mean there's a lot of very funny kind of correlations out there in humans and animals and that I think tell you something fundamental about all those relationships right well there's like an elephant has how many copies of p53 and they never get cancer yeah yeah exactly yeah cancer biologists always like to tell that story yeah 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 there's (laughs) a lot of interest I do love that you said that you know your brain is wired because that's what makes you you and we actually just recorded an episode with Dr. Tartaglia um, Ah, at the Toronto Western and that's her whole shtick she says that repeatedly as soon as your brain changes you change and that's sort of the core of the neurodegenerative diseases that are happening in people that, yeah, that come yeah. to see her yeah and, and actually i think people don't understand that yeah. right somehow we think the core of us is so i don't know maybe it comes back to this old idea that your core is in your soul and your soul yeah. actually isn't in your head or something i don't know you yeah know, it's very complicated right yeah definitely you've talked a bit about your research that has to do with stem cells which are a really hot topic right now in science but also have received a lot of media attention and public okay. attention i was wondering if you could talk a bit about the importance of science communication oh science communication is so important the reality is most of our work and our existence is really thanks to the public. (laughs) The public is paying the taxes that I use to fund my laboratory. And as a consequence, I think it's really essential, and we owe it to the taxpayers and the public to do everything we can to help to inform them. And I think that's even more important in this day and age when it's really getting hard to tell what is real versus what's not real. You can all go on the internet and find any question we wanted to ask and find two completely opposing views from two groups that are equally certain that they're the right ones, right? So I think as scientists first, the most straightforward thing that we need to do is communicate the evidence and the quotes unquote facts if there are such things to people. But the second thing we need to do, and I think this is even more critical, is we have to teach people to be critical thinkers. We have to teach them to not just accept things that someone tells them just because the person is brazen and says it with great confidence. And, and you know, that's really what the scientific method is, right? The scientific method is recognizing that actually even things we say are facts aren't really facts, right? They're, 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 they're theories. Yeah, they're theories, and they're very strong theories with lots of data behind them, but they could still be wrong in ways we don't understand. But to learn to think in that, that kind of a, I guess it really is a critical way, is really important. And I think, you know, let's take something as trivial as food. I, I honestly. So much fake news. There's <laughs> so much fake news in food. You know, I have friends who, by the way, are very smart, well educated. 
and accomplished individuals who say things to me about food that make my <laughs> jaw drop open. You know, it's, honestly, just the things that they have bought into because somebody, a celebrity, wrote a book that said, oh, this is the way you should be. And, and I mean... You can package up anything in the right way to sell it to people, right? So I think that kind of communication even, not just let's talk about stem cells and get the reality of it, which, by the way, I think is incredibly important, but also really, you know, you too could look at the not the literature, but the facts, or when you hear people telling you these things, maybe just have a little modicum of doubt in your head. And mm -hmm. to bring it back full circle to stem cells, as you know, one of the big issues right now is all of these people that are making large sums of money off of completely unwarranted, quotes unquote, stem cell therapies. And they are everywhere in the world. I mean, this isn't just something that's happening, you know, across the ocean. These are things that are happening in North America and in Europe. Clinics where people are paying large sums of money to, for example, take their child with cerebral palsy to get stem cell treatments. Uh, no, no, I... The, it's despicable what is happening. And I actually talk to quite a few people who are in that position. And I try to educate them about, you know, well, really, there's no scientific data to support that idea. And here, for example, don't just take my word for it. You know, the International Society for Stem Cell Research mm -hmm. actually publishes you know, lists of clinics that aren't practicing warranted therapies, et cetera. But you know, to get back from a broader perspective, for example, I don't know who participated in the March for Science mm -hmm. last year. It's coming up again this yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? I mean, a lot of scientists maybe um, don't go to it. But, you know, I was just invited to give a little talk at it, you know. And I thought, even though that makes me nervous because I'm not sure what I will say, nonetheless, that's my job. I really think that's my job. Then I'm definitely going to go this year. Yeah, it's my responsibility, <laughs> though, right, to, yeah. like, to do that and to give science a face as well, mm -hmm. right? I, I know people are afraid of change, which is part of why this is happening, but people actually are becoming very negative about science and scientists and technology. And I think it's fear, mostly, but they need to know that actually we're not trying to foist new pills on them or, or technology they don't want. We're actually trying to understand what it means to be human and how we can use that information to help to fix things for them so they have better lives mm -hmm. in terms of medical treatment. And as soon as we go from just being people in lab coats that, who are faceless to actually being people who have real lives and who someone can look at and say, yeah, I met them. And they were actually pretty nice, you know. The, the, that, that too is an important part of science communication. And I just want to back up because uh, you mentioned there are a lot of people who come to you and ask, if a stem cell trial or if a stem cell therapy is legitimate or not, how do they find you? Because you're, I can understand clinicians because their patients will, will email them yeah. or come to them or people find them online. But as a scientist, you're yeah. a little bit more removed from patients. So yes, how do people yes, actually... I am, as a matter of fact. Yeah. And usually a lot of people have found me through, um, do you know this organization 3 to b Unfortunately, I believe it's perhaps folding now, but it was an organization... Uh, there's quite a bit on the web about it, but it was um, founded by um, Dana Florence, who had three children, uh, born all of whom triplets who had cerebral palsy. And she's a very impressive person, very young when this happened, 28 or something like that. And uh, she just made it her mandate 
to try and um, raise money for research in the area. And also she had a really amazing, um, together with her colleagues, of course, she didn't do this on her own, an amazing impact also on education, on bringing the community together. But because of Dana and 3 to be, I had a lot of connections with that community. But now, of course, that's going away, right? Because she is now on another stage of her life. Mm-hmm. You know, bless her heart. Yeah. And um, uh, the other place I sometimes get things from is from the Stem Cell Network, the Canadian Stem Cell Network. Uh, sadly, the Canadian Stem Cell Network was funded by one of the Networks of Centers of Excellence mechanisms. And I, with the best of intentions, that program was really built to so every network sunsetted. Oh. And so... That network was a huge part of the Canadian stem cell scene on all levels, from communication to ethics to research, everything. And then they weren't allowed to reapply for funding again as a network. But, but I have to say this, and, and uh, this is, uh, I have to give a shout out to our current government because one thing that they have allowed to happen is for the stem cell network now to go in to kind of say, no, no, that sunsetting clause in some situations is not good mm-hmm. you still have to compete but you can go in again so nice so it's mm-hmm. still it's still going along you know and uh, i have my fingers crossed i want to uh, switch gears a little bit but so you're at the stage in your career where you know you're you're a senior scientist here at sick kids you're pretty well established can we talk you've talked about your trainees a little bit but can we talk a little bit about what your style is with your trainees particularly your female trainees Again, you're a senior scientist, but what kind of barriers maybe have you faced going through your career? Yeah, um, sure. I'm happy to talk about that. And, and what advice do you give to, to your students? Yeah. So, so um, for myself, as I mentioned, I did a PhD in an area that was very male-dominated. <laughs> so in a sense, I was in a situation that could have been the worst you can imagine in terms of not having role models or really mentors who were women. I actually felt very fortunate that even I was also brought up at a time which was somewhat less enlightened with regards to how uh, faculty interacted with their students. Now, I think I was one of the lucky ones in that I never ever had an inappropriate interaction with anybody who was, you know, in a power position over me. So that was really positive. I did feel odd you know, being the only woman, especially such a young woman, when I go to a conference. Yeah, yeah, it was very odd. And and, uh, I have to admit that probably people didn't take me quite as seriously. Some people did. I have to qualify that. Some people, of course, did. But some some didn't, perhaps. And then I uh, got married before I did my postdoc. And uh, I actually had one child before I did my postdoc. And then I had my second child at after I got a position. And so that was always an interesting uh, struggle in the sense of if I had not had a very supportive spouse who was willing to really share childcare with me, even though I think I was always the primary caregiver, nonetheless, it would have been hard. But I was also lucky in that regard. But you know what? I will acknowledge that being a woman with a job where you're expected to work hard and having a family can be a tough thing. But you know what? I don't think it's any harder being a scientist and doing that than any other job you can imagine. And as a matter of fact, I would argue the converse, that I think I benefited tremendously by being a woman 
in science doing that as opposed to my friends who were doctors or lawyers or business people because my hours were my own. Mm -hmm. No one tells you when to work. If you want to come in, as I did during my postdoc, at four in the morning and work till, you know, four. No, you didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I came in like four, between four and six every morning. And then I'd work till like four and then I could go home and get my son. Mm-hmm. And because I was trading off with my partner, right? My yeah, husband at yeah. the time. So you just do it, right? And no one said to me, or if my child was sick, if I couldn't go in, I couldn't go in. Or I could, you know, quickly run in for an hour and do that experiment that couldn't wait and then go home again. So I actually think as a woman in science, it was easier for me to have a family than many other careers I could have pursued. So based on those experiences and on the fact, by the way, that Canada is a very pro-woman scientific society, very, very much so. Um, there are so have, many ads right now promoting women in science. And with Kirsty Duncan, she's really driven Absolutely. That and yeah. it's not just that, right? I mean, even on the ground, you know, in reality, not just an ad, really, it's, it's almost blind to your gender. No one even really cares. You know what I mean? I, I don't think people, you know, of course, they're going to notice your gender when they meet you. But it's got, there's no value judgment on that as a scientist, right? You're one or the other, and that's perfectly fine. You know, whatever you do outside, that's fine, too. So my female students, the advice I give them. First, I tell them, don't ever put yourself in a position where people might think you're trying appear professional at all times. That's the way I'd rather phrase it, right? And yes, you may, when you go out on Saturday night, wear not many clothes in the summer. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's completely your prerogative. I don't care if you wear any clothes on Saturday, you know. But you know Only what I mean? Only on Saturday. Though. Yeah, but when you're in a professional working environment, and as soon as you become a graduate student, it's a professional working environment, right? Just recognize that. It's people, and it's not just a male-female thing. They're people of different sort of religious backgrounds who might, you know, take offense or cultural backgrounds. You know, you just want to be, you don't want to be judged for how you look. That's the number one thing. How you look should just be a non-issue, right? So Mm -hmm. don't you yourself make it an issue Mm -hmm. in any way. Um, That's number one. Number two, this is probably the biggest thing find a supportive partner (laughs) you know (laughs) you know they can be anything else (laughs) but make sure they support you in what you do do you talk relationships with your grad students and and postdocs if they if someone did ever like come to me and they were having a hard time and that has happened right really Uh, yeah yeah I mean then then of course I will right but otherwise I talk in the same kind of generalities I'm talking to you about right I mean just because I don't even talk to my friends about the relationships yeah. you know you want to keep a friendship you just don't unless someone wants to talk to you or right? definitely don't offer your opinion <laughs> yeah <right>. exactly <laughs> no opinions right but in the generic don't end up with a person who isn't going to support you and wanting to do what you want to do and who if you do decide to have children and that's again a completely your decision thing who is not going to help you have those children in some way right and super important piece of advice is don't give up it's just too easy to just say oh you know what this all seems too complicated i'm just gonna like take a year off or two years off and and then just disappear right or or i'm gonna go do something quotes unquote easier well if you're the kind of person 
who's doing your PhD or a postdoc in science, how happy are you going to be mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. three years sitting out there doing nothing or working at Tim Hortons or, you know, whatever? You're not going to be very happy. So never take the easy way out. You know what I mean? And t- again, that's part of taking risks, right? Better to try and fail than to not try. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think actually in this regard, women are lucky because we don't have a lot of societal pressure to become <laughs> giant successes, right? I mean, honestly, now this might not be true for you, but if I got my PhD and I'd said, you know what, mom? I don't really want to do this anymore. I'm going to go do, you know, whatever. She would have patted me on the back and said, we're really proud you got your PhD. Yeah. Right. Whereas, let's be honest, a lot of men in our society, if they go through that far and then they say they're going to go do something else. Oh, how long are you going to be in school? And when are you going Mm -hmm. to make a living? You know, I think the pressures on men and women from in our culture are different. And so I think as women, we have a lot of space. And we should take advantage of that in the space. professional world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In your lifestyle. Yeah, and that's the other advice, by the way, is be realistic and and accept yourself, right? So, so if you are in that position, like I was, where I, it's you know I have a baby, a brand new baby. I've only had a lab for two years. You know what? Things go slower. Say la vie. <laughs> you know what I mean? I can't be in there that much, right? You know, as much as I might have wanted. So what? You know, that, and that's part of just just being okay with who you are in your skin and the decisions you've made. And like I said, and then what's the worst case scenario? I don't do well. Well, so what? You know, I'm a talented person. I can do something else. Uh, you're also the founder of two biotech companies. Um, yes. Would you mind telling us a bit about the story behind their inception and the role you've played? Sure. So the first biotech company, which became in its final genesis called Ajira Therapeutics, There was a time in Canadian biotech history when there was lots of venture capital floating around looking for companies. Uh, That no longer exists, by the way. But at that time, I was in Montreal, the Montreal Neurological Institute, and um, there was a group of us, my husband, David Kaplan, myself, and another scientist, Phil Barker, um, all of whom were- still at the MNI. He actually moved to UBC. He's heading research at the Kelowna campus was that a couple years ago that yeah very recently right so they came and we were all working on on things that help to keep neurons alive which of course is a giant potential area um following injury or neurodegeneration so they basically came to us and said hey you guys want to start a company and we've got all this money and you've got technology and um None of us had ever done anything like that. We didn't really have a clue. And uh, Did you have any business experience? No. Yeah. None of us. None of us. We were complete neophytes, right? Yeah. And we did get a CEO, a part-time CEO, who helped us. And the venture capital guys really knew a lot. They were big, big venture capital people. So that was really a, a really interesting experience. And then we basically merged with uh, an Ottawa-based small biotech and and uh, we, they had a lot of trials. We developed drugs that actually ultimately, most of the trials were not for neurodegeneration in the end, but for different kinds of cancers. And uh, so that was really fun because we saw it. That was, a, I, in the end, I don't know how much money, $60 million company or $100 million or something. It, was a, it lasted a long time. Um, the second company couldn't be more different. These are much leaner times in terms of money to be invested. And uh, it was just started formally in January, this 
past year, so a year so and a few months new. ago. And that is funded by angel investors. And so angel investors, if you're not familiar with the term, simply means people who have their own money and invest in selected things. And uh, they're not necessarily people who normally go into biotech. And as a matter of fact, these individuals, I don't know if they've ever invested in biotech before. It's just something excites them and they decide That's this is what's exactly what it, right? And that particular company, we're gonna be having a clinical trial very soon. And it's based on drugs that we found that actually activate stem cells that I discovered in the dermis. It's actually for promoting um, uh, uh, not skin repair so much as uh, to prevent skin thinning. Because as people get elderly, one of the reasons they get bed sores and things like that is because their skin becomes so fragile, right? And so um, even if you have like psoriasis or something and you have to take a lot of steroids, topical steroids, it really makes your skin very mm. fragile. And so we think that actually by enhancing the recruitment of your dermal stem cells that we can actually prevent that thinning to some degree so we'll see is that going to be like a cream that you can put all over your body or? yeah yeah it, well that is how the trial is going forward oh, it's cool. actually for steroid induced uh, skin thinning that's how we're because it's a very controlled kind of an indication right and for me i'm very excited obviously for the, about the clinical repercussions but you as you can imagine the angel investors one of the reasons they're excited is because there's a whole world a be- of, beauty industry of, is massive yeah <laughs> of stuff that they could spin off onto another thing so it's kind of a win-win it's and it's fun right but it's a very lean mean company in the sense of we don't have that much money mm. and we're our whole raison d'etre is to run this clinical trial so I have my fingers crossed, eh? I mean, and anytime you can see the work you do go from actually just being an idea to like actually data to actually something in the clinic, it's huge, right? Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Very it's exciting. really exciting. Yeah. So you have so many different titles at this point. You're, uh. you're a fellow of the Royal <laughs> Society of Canada. You're an international Howard Hughes medical investigator. I don't know how many letters are after your name, which is it's kind of ridiculous at, after a certain point. You, we also talked a little bit about what you do outside of the lab. You said you love mountain biking. You're apparently a third degree black belt, which yeah. I don't know how you, that, <laughs> we should, if we don't leave this office, everyone, it's, come look for Frida Miller. <laughs> um, how do you, how do you balance your time? You know what? I, I have to credit that decision when I was leaving my postdoc. And I, I'm thankful, actually, to seeing the kind of really cutthroat work 20 hours a day to try to, like, outcompete everybody environment. Because that was the point at which I said, well, you know, I already have one child. And I have a lot of interests. And again, to come back to this corny I did it my way thing, I really just decided if I can't actually have a life, and be a scientist, then maybe I don't want to be a scientist. Maybe I should do something else, right? I mean, I love science. Don't get me wrong. And I can't imagine in retrospect having had a better career. But you know what? It's one big part of me, but it's not all of me, right? When did you get your black belt? I only got my first black belt 10 years ago. No way. Yeah. You know what happened? The story is this. So Please my tell wa- me you were not attacked or anything. Like no, that. no, okay. no, no, no. It's a much nicer story. <laughs> okay. So my son was taking, my sons, neither of them were ever really into team sports so much. They were much more, probably more like me, more of a 
you know, wanted to do your own thing and just do your best at it, right? And uh, so he started to get into Taekwondo. And I started to go and watch his tests or, you know, whatever. And I thought, man, this really looks like fun. Because, <laughs> because honestly, for a woman, there's lots of kicking. And and like high kicks and jumps and whatever. I'd done a lot of dance. And when I was younger, gymnastics and stuff. I thought, wow, this really looks cool. So I actually started to take... An adult. At the adult know. class. And we actually tested for our black belts together, my son and I. Stop. And yeah, yeah. And then and then, um, then I got into a black belt class with a very senior person who was a coach of the Canadian national team and, and a very selective. He selects people more because he likes their attitude than anything. Um, he's very traditional, so it's all about respect. And you don't do it. You do it because, as he puts it, it's a way of life, you know, and discipline and and, uh, really trying to make yourself the best you can be. And over the past X number of years, I guess close to maybe it's been more like eight that I've been training with him or nine. I've just gone up the ranks. Wow. Yeah. And does your son also have a third degree black belt? No, no, no. <laughs> oh my gosh. So he you're... went off to graduate school. <laughs> I don't have time for this anymore. I have, I'm a black belt already. I can stop right here. <laughs> no. And you know, it's interesting, right? Because I've started to teach now. And I teach, I have a class for my students, my female students. Yeah, every Wednesday really? night. Really? Yeah, Where yeah. Where do you do it? Yeah, just over at Rosedale United Church. We get, They have a gym there. And I like, uh, I rent the space out and we teach them. And, and, uh, and actually, one of the things I'm thinking, I mean, who knows? This is like, you know, sort of one of those dreams, right? I, I would love, you know, as if, if when it comes to the point when I'm maybe doing less science, whatever, to like ha- actually have a school. Yeah. You know, that'd be fun, right? Because it's all about, I mean, even though when people think about something like Taekwondo, they think about, you know, the fighting and stuff. And it is an Olympic sport. And yeah, there is that kind of thing, right? But, but it's it, also about the principles. It's about the principles. And honestly, th- there's a lot of uh, forms and stuff that are kind of like dance. You know, and and uh, and and we do play a lot of fun sort of sort of sparring games where no one ever get really gets hit. It's more like reaction games, and there's always more to learn. It's really fun. That's <laughs> awesome. Cool. How long did it take you to get your black belt? My black belt, I trained pretty hard for. It's not that bad. It's like four years or something, but pretty just steady. You know, three times a week, because there's a lot of belts you got to get through. To yeah, get to there's the black like belt. white, yellow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the interesting thing is once you get your first Dan black belt, you're considered to be a beginner again. Hmm. Because it's kind of the second stage, you know, and you're a beginner at it. And then it becomes much more complicated because, so for example, the top levels, you have to be a certain age before they'll even consider you. And so once to even get past a third Dan like I am... I mean, you actually have to be teaching and mentoring, and and I had to write essays at what? all. Yeah, yeah, big essays on different so things. So in addition to writing grants, and, yeah. you're also <laughs> writing essays about philosophy to get your black belt. Yeah, That's yeah, incredible. Yeah, yeah. So it's oh my gosh. But you know what? See, I mean, it sounds like a lot to you, but but on the other hand, it's a lot of years, right? If you sure, think yeah. if you think like ten years ago, you were just a kid. Right? I mean, so it's just over time, you start to accumulate a lot of things you've done. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I was wondering, uh, going back to science communication, 
I was wondering yes. if you have any tips or advice to give to, I guess, just the science community, grad all levels, graduate students, postdocs, um, about what they can do to kind of improve science communication. So, so you know, all of us, in terms of improving science communication, I think one of the first things you can do is just be an advocate in your community. Because one of the first things, even if for some people that might mean no more than when their friends start to talk about ridiculous things, you know what I mean? Helping to inform them in a gentle, non-confrontational way about what, what is reality. The second step is the kind of thing you're already doing, which is to participate in a somewhat more structured way, but not too structured blogs or, you know, podcasts or things like that can make a big difference. And they hit a huge or they can hit a huge community now, right? Mm -hmm. Your advantage over someone like me is that you're young. So when people look at you, they really see a peer. Whereas if they look at someone like me, they either see a quotes unquote scientist sort of this completely new other community, potentially a talking head, but they don't see a peer, right? And so people can say, oh, you know, they're just pulling, maybe she's in the pay of the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, you never know what people might believe about you, right? And so, um, but the, the thing is, it isn't easy to be an excellent science communicator. Some people, I shouldn't say that, for some people it's very easy. Right? It just comes naturally to them. But many people, it's not that easy, right? Mm. So the more you can practice giving talks, even informal, writing things, um, all those communication skills, um, even if you are good at it already, you can only improve. And I'm going to end with one example of someone I know who has done that. I had a postdoctoral fellow in the lab who now just opened her own lab at University of Alberta and asked to see if we're over. And her husband, Jason Tetro, is now like actually a best-selling author mm. of books about microbes. You didn't know that, no, huh? Yeah, he, he, he calls himself the germ guy. But he's if you look him up, his last name's T-E-T-R-O. He's written several books that have done incredibly well. And they're just the kind of science communication you're talking about. His background is a PhD in microbiology. And he knows a lot of immunology. So again, that's an area which is full of, you know misinformation he's an excellent writer so he is able to like communicate to people and explain things to them in language that they understand he also writes a blog for the huffington post oh, nice. yeah and, and he just started doing that on his own you know what i mean this wasn't just doing the small steps i'm telling you you know like and, and then it he just had the it took guts right yeah to then say fine i'm gonna write a book and he just did it and, and got a lot of feedback and it did very well. So and it's really key to have good people in that area in science communication because it can become very frustrating because you face, a spe well, maybe less so in Canada, depending on where you are. But in the States, you face a lot of pushback. It's, it's, it's almost well known that like the more I shove scientific facts down your throat, the less yeah. likely you are to believe someone or to believe me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, yeah, it yeah. You're absolutely right, and it's really important. And I think that's one of the reasons Jason does it very effectively is because he's not he doesn't come across that way, right? He comes across just as another guy you meet at a dinner, a dinner party, right? You want to hear something cool about yeah, germs? Yeah, yeah, and he tells you about it, right? So it's not proselytizing; it's informing, mm -hmm. right? And and sometimes as scientists, it can be hard not to proselytize because you hear so much just 
junk out there, right? Junk facts. But people get their hackles up when you do that. So, but yeah, it, it, it and of course, then it, it always takes a few lucky breaks, right? That's life. Cool. So I think that's a perfect place to end off. Perfect. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, yeah. Thank you. It's been fun. Dr. Miller isn't the only scientist outraged by individuals boasting fraudulent stem cell therapies. If you're interested in hearing more about stem cell tourism or wondering which stem cell therapies have actually been approved, check out episode 28 of Raw Talk, where James and Anton discuss the dangers of the stem cell hype and how scientists have used social media and science communication to spread awareness. All right, here's a preview of our next episode. Swapna and I sat down with Dr. Carmela Tartaglia, a concussion researcher and neurologist at the Kremble Research Institute's Memory Clinic, to learn about the effects of aerobic exercise on the brain and how she practices what she preaches. And I actually am a strong advocate for exercise, for aerobic exercise. I think there's a lot of evidence out there that it's good for the brain. So I promote that and I do practice what I preach. Tune in on April 18th for the full episode. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our site when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. Because somebody, a celebrity, wrote a book that said, oh, this is the way you should be. And, and I mean, you can package up anything in the right way to sell it to people, right?